Section 1 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumont. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumont, Section 1. One September afternoon in 1751, toward half-past five, about a score of small boys, chattering, pushing, and tumbling over one another like a covey of partridges, issued from one of the religious schools of Chartres. The joy of the little troop just escaped from a long and wearisome captivity was doubly great. A slight accident to one of the teachers had caused the class to be dismissed half an hour earlier than usual and in consequence of the extra work thrown on the teaching staff, the brother whose duty it was to see all the scholars safe home was compelled to omit that part of his daily task. Therefore, not only thirty or forty minutes were stolen from work, but there was also unexpected, uncontrolled liberty, free from the surveillance of that black, cassocked overseer who kept order in their ranks. Thirty minutes! At that age it is a century! of laughter and prospective games. Each had promised solemnly, under pain of severe punishment, to return straight to his paternal nest without delay. But the air was so fresh and pure, the country smiled all around. The school, or preferably the cage, which had just opened, lay at the extreme edge of one of the suburbs, and it only required a few steps to slip under a cluster of trees by a sparkling brook beyond which arose undulating ground, breaking the monotony of a fast and fertile plain. Was it possible to be obedient, to refrain from the desire to spread one's wings? The scent of the meadows mounted to the heads of the steadiest among them, and intoxicated even the most timid. It was resolved to betray the confidence of the reverend fathers, even at the risk of disgrace and punishment next morning, supposing the escapade were discovered. A flock of sparrows suddenly released from a cage could not have flown more wildly into the little wood. They were all about the same age. The eldest might be nine. They flung off coats and waistcoats, and the grass became strewn with baskets, copybooks, dictionaries, and catechisms. While the crowd of fair-haired heads of fresh and smiling faces, noisily consulted as to which game should be chosen, a boy who had taken no part in the general gaiety, and who had been carried away by the rush without being able to escape sooner, glided slyly away among the trees, and thinking himself unseen, was beating a hasty retreat, when one of his comrades cried out, "'Antoine is running away!' Two of the best runners immediately started in pursuit, and the fugitive, notwithstanding his start, was speedily overtaken, seized by his collar, and brought back as a deserter. "'Where were you going?' the others demanded. "'Home to my cousins,' replied the boy. "'There's no harm in that.' "'You canting sneak,' said another boy, putting his fist under the captive's chin. "'You were going to the master to tell of us.' "'Pierre,' responded Antoine, "'you know quite well I never tell lies.' "'Indeed, only this morning you pretended I had taken a book you had lost, "'and you did it because I kicked you yesterday, 
and you didn't dare kick me back again. And Tuan lifted his eyes to heaven, folding his arms on his breast. Dear Butel, he said, you are mistaken. I have always been taught to forgive injuries. Listen, listen, he might be saying his prayers, cried the other boys, and a volley of offensive epithets, enforced by cuffs, was hurled at the culprit. Pierre Butel, whose influence was great, put a stop to this onslaught. Look here, Antoine, you are a bad lot, that we all know. You are a sneak and a hypocrite. It's time we put a stop to it. Take off your coat and fight it out. If you like, we will fight every morning and evening until the end of the month. The proposition was loudly applauded, and Pierre, turning up his sleeves as far as his elbows, prepared to suit action to words. The challenger assuredly did not realize the full meaning of his words. Had he done so, this chivalrous defiance would simply have been an act of cowardice on his part, for there could be no doubt as to the victor in such a conflict. The one was a boy of alert and gallant bearing, strong upon his legs, supple and muscular, a vigorous man in embryo, while the other, not quite so old, small, thin, of a sickly leaden complexion, seemed as if he might be blown away by a strong puff of wind. His skinny arms and legs hung on to his body like the claws of a spider. His fair hair inclined to red, his white skin appeared nearly bloodless, and the consciousness of weakness made him timid and gave a shifty, uneasy look to his eyes. His whole expression was uncertain, and looking only at his face it was difficult at first sight to decide to which sex he belonged. This confusion of two natures, this indefinable mixture of feminine weakness without grace and of abortive boyhood, seemed to stamp him as something exceptional, unclassable, and once observed, it was difficult to take one's eyes from him. Had he been endowed with physical strength, he would have been a terror to his comrades, exercising by fear the ascendancy which Pierre owed to his joyous temper and unwearied gaiety, for this mean exterior concealed extraordinary powers of will and dissimulation. Guided by instinct, the other children hung around Peter and willingly accepted his leadership. By instinct also they avoided Antoine, repelled by a feeling of chill, as if from the neighborhood of a reptile, and shunning him unless to profit in some way by their superior strength. Never would he join their games without compulsion. His thin, colorless lips seldom parted for a laugh, and even at that tender age his smile had an unpleasantly sinister expression. "'Will you fight?' again demanded Pierre. Antoine glanced hastily around. There was no chance of escape. A double ring enclosed him. To accept or refuse seemed about equally risky. He ran a good chance of a thrashing, whichever way he decided. Although his heart beat loudly, no trace of emotion appeared on his pallid cheek. An unforeseen danger would have made him shriek, but he had had time to collect himself, time to shelter behind hypocrisy. As soon as he could lie and cheat, he recovered courage, and the instinct of cunning, once roused, prevailed over everything else. Instead of answering the second challenge, he knelt down and said to Pierre, You are much stronger than I am. The submission disarmed his antagonist. Get up, he replied. 
I won't touch you if you can't defend yourself. Pierre, continued Antoine, still on his knees, I assure you by God and the Holy Virgin, I was not going to tell. I was going home to my cousins to learn my lessons for tomorrow. You know how slow I am. If you think I have done you any harm, I ask your forgiveness. Pierre held out his hand and made him get up. Will you be a good fellow, Antoine, and play with us? Yes, I will. All right, then. Let us forget all about it. What are we to play at? asked Antoine, taking off his coat. Thieves and archers, cried one of the boys. Splendid, said Pierre, and using his acknowledged authority, he divided them into two sides, ten highwaymen whom he was to command, and ten archers of the guard who were to pursue them. Antoine was among the latter. The highwaymen, armed with swords and guns obtained from the willows which grew along the brook, moved off first and gained the valleys between the little hills beyond the wood. The fight was to be serious, and any prisoner on either side was to be tried immediately. The robbers divided into twos and threes and hid themselves in the ravines. A few minutes later the archers started in pursuit. There were encounters, surprises, skirmishes, but whenever it came to close quarters, Pierre's men, skillfully distributed, united on hearing his whistle, and the army of justice had to retreat. But there came a time when this magic signal was no longer heard, and the robbers became uneasy and remained crouching in their hiding places. Pierre, over daring, had undertaken to defend alone the entrance of a dangerous passage and to stop the whole hostile troop there. While he kept them engaged, half of his men, concealed on the left, were to come round the foot of the hill and make a rush on hearing his whistle. The other half, also stationed at some little distance, were to execute the same maneuver from above. The archers would be caught in a trap, and attacked both in front and rear, would be obliged to surrender at discretion. Chance, which not unfrequently decides the fate of a battle, defeated this excellent stratagem. Watching intently, Pierre failed to perceive that while his whole attention was given to the ground in front, the archers had taken an entirely different road from the one they ought to have followed if his combination were to succeed. They suddenly fell upon him from behind, and before he could blow his whistle, they gagged him with a handkerchief and tied his hands. Six remained to keep the field of battle and disperse the hostile band, now deprived of its chief. The remaining four conveyed Pierre to the little wood, while the robbers, hearing no signal, did not venture to stir. According to agreement, Pierre Boutel was tried by the archers, who promptly transformed themselves into a court of justice, and as he had been taken red-handed and did not condescend to defend himself, the trial was not a long affair. He was unanimously sentenced to be hung, and the execution was then and there carried out at the request of the criminal himself, who wanted the game to be properly played to the end and who actually selected a suitable tree for his own execution. But Pierre, said one of the judges, how can you be held up there? How stupid you are, returned the captive. I shall only pretend to be hung, of course. See here. And he fastened together several pieces strong string, which had tied some of the other boy's books, piled the latter together, and standing on tiptoe, on this very insecure basis, fastened one end of the cord to a horizontal bough, 
and put his neck into a running knot at the other end, endeavoring to imitate the contortions of an actual sufferer. Shouts of laughter greeted him, and the victim laughed loudest of all. Three archers went to call the rest to behold this amusing spectacle. One, tired out, remained with the prisoner. Ah, hangman, said Pierre, putting out his tongue at him. Are the books firm? I thought I felt them give way. No, replied Antoine. It was he who remained. Don't be afraid, Pierre. It is a good thing, for if they fell, I don't think the cord is long enough. Don't you really think so? A horrible thought showed itself like a flash on the child's face. He resembled a young hyena scenting blood for the first time. He glanced at the pile of books Pierre was standing on and compared it with the length of the cord between the branch and his neck. It was already nearly dark. The shadows were deepening in the wood. Gleams of pale light penetrated between the trees. The leaves had become black and rustled in the wind. Antoine stood silent and motionless, listening if any sound could be heard near them. It would be a curious study for the moralist to observe how the first thought of crime develops itself in the recesses of the human heart, and how this poison germ grows and stifles all other sentiments. An impressive lesson might be gathered from this struggle of two opposing principles, however weak it may be, in perverted natures. In evil, the guilty person has only himself to blame, and the most heinous crime is only the action of its perpetrator. It is a human action, the result of passions, which might have been controlled, and one's mind is not uncertain, nor one's conscience doubtful as to the guilt. But how can one conceive this taste for murder in a young child? How imagine it? without being tempted to exchange the idea of eternal sovereign justice for that of blind fatality. How can one judge without hesitation between the moral sense which has given way and the instinct which displays itself? How not explain that the designs of a creator who retains the one and impels the other are sometimes mysterious and inexplicable, and that one must submit without understanding? Do you hear them coming? asked Pierre. I hear nothing, replied Antoine, and a nervous shiver ran through all his members. So much the worse. I am tired of being dead. I shall come to life and run after them. Hold the books, and I will undo the noose. If you move, the books will separate. Wait, I will hold them. And he knelt down, and collecting all his strength, gave the pile a violent push. Pierre endeavored to raise his hands to his throat. What, what are you doing? he cried in a suffocating voice. I am paying you out, replied Antoine, folding his arms. Pierre's feet were only a few inches from the ground, and the weight of his body at first bent the bow for a moment. But it rose again, and the unfortunate boy exhausted himself in useless efforts. At every movement the knot grew tighter. His legs struggled, his arms sought vainly something to lay hold of. Then his movement slackened, his limbs stiffened, and his hands sank down. Of so much life and vigor nothing remained but the movement of an inert mass turning round and round upon itself. Not till then did Antoine cry for help, and when the other boys hastened up they found him crying and tearing his hair. 
So violent, indeed, were his sobs and his despair that he could hardly be understood as he tried to explain how the books had given way under Pierre and how he had vainly endeavored to support him in his arms. End of section one.